0: Climate Justice, y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision making table. Because of that, we decided to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South hit the hardest by the climate crisis. We're going to use good old fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, their sweat, and their tears to transform this region. The usage of y'all in the titles on purpose. We are honoring our southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. Welcome, y'all. This is Climate Justice, y'all, and I'm your host, Abigail Franks. I'm joined by the queen herself, Marisha Malcolm. Today, we're going to be talking about democracy. And seeing that it's July, also known as America Month, on top of these being dangerous times for our democracy, it's perfect timing. For the United States to become resilient against climate change, and to ensure justice for all, we think it's important to talk about this.
1: We are bringing in democracy experts: Nashambi Lambright from One Voice Mississippi, Andrea Miller from People Demanding Action, and B. Moorehead from Texas Impact to give us insight about the state of our democratic process. Climate justice, y'all—it's real, it's here, and it's about time. We listen to folks like Nashambi, Andrea, and B. Thank you. So could you introduce yourself and talk about your organization?
2: Hi, my name is Nishambi lambright Haynes, and I am the executive director of One Voice. Hi, Ms. Nishambi, how are you?
1: Hey, good, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Um, so what got you into this work and what makes you so passionate about democracy?
2: Oh man, um, I have been and community organizing work probably since my time at Tougaloo College, which was um, from the years 1990 to 1994. And I guess um, this I'm passionate about this work because um, it touches me and and my family. Almost all of the issues that we work on actually, you know, touch members of, of my family, and that's how I was first introduced um, to them. And I just um, enjoy helping people. I enjoy doing work that um, makes a difference in our communities and supports uh, the well-being of of families um, in Mississippi.
0: So real quick, um what exactly does one voice do? And y'all are are y'all just in Mississippi or are y'all like regional? What's
2: up? Yes, we are just in Mississippi. Uh, we used to have um, a Louisiana office, and our Louisiana colleagues actually um, started their own organization, and that office is now the Power Coalition, which you guys may have heard of. They do some excellent work um, in, in in Louisiana, and we still partner with them on a lot of things. So we're um, here in Mississippi now, and of course, we have partners like you guys um, all over the country that help support. Our work, and we have a number of national partners also. But One Voice um, is, is a nonprofit, it's the social justice leadership development and civic engagement organization with the mission of lifting voices of underserved communities. And that work takes us in a few different directions. Um, we have a, a climate justice program, which you guys are familiar with and have helped us with a lot um where we are um helping um individuals in rural communities around the state gain power uh, within their electric cooperatives we also engage in work around um civic engagement and voting rights um mississippi is one of those states that has horrible um voting rights laws um no early voting no online voter registration and disenfranchisement for individuals with um felony convictions so we um have some very horrible laws we also engage in work around reforming the criminal justice system in the public education system in mississippi but most of most of this work is around um helping communities um to organize in their own communities around issues that are important to them
0: Okay, so it sounds like y'all are kind of like the hub for a lot of action that's happening in Mississippi in so many different ways,
2: if I'm gathering that correctly. How big are y'all? Yeah, we have a staff of um, 12 full-time and we have a few um, part-time consultants and we also have interns um, every semester. And of course, a large volunteer base. Um, We don't consider ourselves a hub necessarily, but we do facilitate a lot of um, coalitions around some of these issues. Uh, For instance, our civic engagement work has um, a round table that engages in voter registration and voter engagement and voter protection. And we also um, have an education coalition as well.
0: So how, are, how would you say that all of those are connected? I'm sorry, I'm like throwing all these questions at you, oh, but okay. I'm genuinely curious to see this connection. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah, all of these issues connect in the way that we talk about building power in underserved communities. And it's really interesting, over the last few years, we've started more analysis on um, the impact of poverty on our community, And what we see is that um, being in a state that has um, a really high number of families in in poverty connects all of these issues. So for instance, when we're talking to our folks about the electric cooperative work, they're also in communities that have a really bad public education system. They also um, are in communities that um, suffer from flooding. Uh, when storms come through. Uh, They also uh, have um, public officials who aren't necessarily accountable to, um, you know, underserved community. And so all Mm -hmm. of these issues start where, they're also located in communities, that have big prisons that they need to fill up. So all of these issues start connecting. And sometimes I feel like, okay, like we're talking about stuff too much to them They're going to get tired of us but (laughs) they haven't yet (laughs) so every time you know we have a a new thing that we're talking about or have some new information or a new report and we're like hey is this a problem here they're like yeah we want to talk about it
0: yeah i mean it seems like especially with underserved communities it's like we already know the issues that are happening yeah but you just got to listen to them you know and that's so important um So with that being said, it sounds like, like you said, you know, you need to make sure these people's voices are being heard and everything. How does that connect to democracy?
2: It connects uh, to democracy through the community organizing lens. And um, as um, trained community organizers, most of my staff, if not all of my staff, I think, um, are trained community organizers and we get our training from veterans of the civil rights movement, who um, were instrumental back in the 60s and, and 70s. Wait, like, like the
0: OG, OG yes, civil rights organization? So wow, absolutely. wow.
2: Absolutely, as a matter of fact, our um, internship program is named after Hollis Watkins, who is, <clears throat> excuse me, one of our leading um, veterans of the civil rights movement here in Mississippi and he still provides training to our interns. And so that's the the script um, that we use. We use his training um, to talk about organizing, using some of those lessons from the civil rights movement. And those lessons are still very important and very relevant today. As a matter of fact, we're still facing some of the same issues that those Mm -hmm. civil rights veterans uh, fought for back then.
1: So, Mrs. Sambi, in these times where democratic process is uncertain and at risk, what gives you hope?
2: Working with young people um, gives me a lot of hope. Um, they have less fear than, you know, some of us. Got season. nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Seasoned folks. <laughs> and so when I see um young folks um, stepping up um, running for office um challenging authority in the school system um and you know just risking it all that gives me hope for future generation that hey um i may not see it in my lifetime but maybe um there is hope for future um generations here in mississippi i love that thank you
0: Nishabi. and I mean, I'm still kind of struck with what you said earlier about how the veterans civil rights movement organizers are still, we're still facing a lot of those problems. So okay. you talking about what gives you hope helps keep the young folks like us like moving. Cause we're like, oh goodness, <laughs> it's been like 60 years, you yeah. know, like, yeah. And so thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for everything you do at One Voice and keep on fight the good fight. We really appreciate you.
2: thank you so much. We are trying. (laughs) We are trying. And thanks so much uh, for all of your support over the years and and the networking. That's invaluable to us because sometimes, you know, you feel like you're isolated and alone out here. But when you know other folks are doing this work and have been where you are now, because we still feel like our energy democracy program is still kind of in the beginning stages. So like looking at you guys that have been in this work, um, for a number of years is very, very helpful for us.
0: Well, we need each other, that's for sure. How are y'all? How's it going?
3: <laughs> We're fine, how are y'all? I'm so glad it's to hear that. Only 90 degrees here. Yep, oh yeah. Same in Virginia, yes. Yep. Yeah, I was worried about taking my dog out for a walk today.
4: Um, oh. She did well, but
3: yeah, it's really hot. <laughs> it's really hot but you know where it's worse is in seattle apparently so right they are not they are built, built for this crazy weather. heat wave yes and they're yeah. not prepared in the same way that mm-hmm. texas was not prepared for the snow in the right. winter. right it does not get that hot in seattle no
4: mm-hmm. yeah houses aren't air conditioned it, it it's it's not necessary it never gets above 80, and that would be a heat wave up there, right?
0: Well, if, if anything, I think it's proving that what we've been talking about for years now, you know
4: climate <laughs> sure. change global screwed up climate yes
0: mm-hmm. yeah well, um before we go down a huge spiral <laughs> if you're like me, could y'all introduce
3: yourselves, please? Absolutely after you
4: Me yeah oh. Okay, Um, I'm Andrea Miller. I live in Virginia. My organization is Center for Common Ground. And we do work primarily around voting, my 501 C4 People Demanding Action. We work on climate voting, um, mass incarceration, and pretty much um, economic and social justice, the Equal Rights Amendment, any progressive issue that there is.
3: All right, woman after my own heart. Well, my name's B. Moorhead. I'm the director of Texas Impact, and we are a 501C4, 501C3, and our C4 uh, works on all those issues too. Right now, we are gearing up for our legislative session we had a regular legislative session that just ended on may 31st and we're getting ready for another one to start next thursday and we know that the uh the whole point of that one is voter suppression so it's timely that we're talking
4: we worked on your legislative session um my policy director we worked on texas a little bit on alabama a lot on georgia and a lot on arizona on your voter suppression bills we can okay. speak every bill introduced in america and we engaged on georgia and arizona and texas because we work on your 2020 election we did Voter registration and voter turnout.
3: Hmm. Okay.
4: Yeah. So Texas, you're one of our states.
3: All right then. I didn't realize y'all were a national organization. That's that's we are normal. national. So yes. do you have somebody coming down here for special session?
4: Uh no, we are remote. We do everything via digital work.
3: So uh we are having a rally on July 19th that we're characterizing as a faith-based rally, but obviously anybody's, uh, you know, welcome to attend. Um, we are calling it uh, Let My People Vote, and it is, it is on Facebook already, on our Facebook page. Um, you know, the legislation hasn't been introduced yet, but we have a pretty good idea what we're expecting to see. So
4: um, I can send that to Rabbi David Siegel. So we He's actually, have five. His yes, organization, yes.
3: I was just texting with him Frank. earlier today. They are, yeah. uh, Nancy Kasten is on our board. So, okay, right, yeah,
4: right. right. We're partnered with five national faith organizations and RAC is one of them. That's the fantastic. Religious Action Center on Reform Judaism, Unitarian Universalist, yep. um, Worker's Circle, United Church of Christ, and the American Ethical Union.
0: Man, I almost like don't want to interrupt y'all. I feel like y'all are having such a good conversation. <laughs>
4: and y'all me haven't met my, each other he is my new bestie
0: <laughs> yeah yeah y'all haven't met each other before small world you never you never know what work is going to impact other people period that is a that's the beginning so real quick I want to introduce my co-host real quick um Marisha she just jumped on the call Marisha you want to introduce yourself
1: Yes. Hi, my name is Marisha. Um, I am a student at UAB. I'm a sophomore, and I'm the (laughs) co-host.
4: And you did texting work for me in 2020.
1: Yes. Yes, I did. I do remember you. Hi. How are you?
4: Hey. Hi, new world.
1: Yeah, again,
0: small world. All right, great. Okay, so... Y'all were talking about the work, like the democracy work that y'all are doing, and you know, it seems like that y'all are already like doing very similar things and amplifying each other's work. Could y'all talk about like specifically what your organization does to protect
4: democracy? You're gonna need to call on us since <laughs> yeah, you know who I got are. you.
3: I got
0: you. Um, let's start
3: off with B. What do we do to protect democracy? So, you know, my organization is a statewide interfaith network. Uh, It's similar to a council of churches, but it's interfaith. And I think we would start with the perspective that the faith community's foundational way that it protects democracy is that it convenes the members of local communities on an ongoing basis. So, you know, we often say, when people talk about community organizing, we say, faith community is the most organized community there is, they have a meeting once a week and it's always in the same location, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we, we start by having a foundational presence in the community that then allows many of the processes of democracy to go forward. So if you think about who are the people who run a local election, those volunteer judges and the people who show up to put up the signs and all that stuff, they're often members of faith communities. Why? Because faith communities almost always have, I mean, all the ones that belong to our organization for sure, have this foundational teaching about caring for neighbor, right? We love our neighbor as ourselves. When you love your neighbor as yourself, in a society like the one we live in, in a democracy, that includes caring about the public policies that influence all of our lives. So people who believe that that love of neighbor is important and and extends into the public square and a democracy are disposed to show up to help make democracy happen. So that's the, the, I'm gonna stop with that and say the foundational way that we support democracy and that we work for democracy is making sure that there is a community of people out in local areas in every part of the state who are invested in and committed to making sure the processes of democracy—the big processes and also the small, grinding, boring processes—all happen? Thank you. That was a lovely answer. Thank you.
1: Um. So, oh, what does democracy? Oh, hold sorry. on. Sorry. Uh, it's time for Andrea. <laughs>
0: She's sipping water. <laughs>
4: okay. Uh, same question, um, we are a unique organization because we have 44,000 volunteers because as I mentioned, our partners are national faith organizations. So 44,000 volunteers, even though most of them are remote from our target state which are primarily in the South, swinging around to Texas, going up to Arizona. So with those partners last year, we do remote voter registration, meaning we concentrate on people who have been purged from the voting rolls, meaning you used to be registered and now you have been dumped off. So, We also run pledge to vote campaigns with infrequent voters. And then, of course, we do GOTV. So in 2020, we sent 9.4 million postcards to voters in our nine target states. We made 1.7 million phone calls and we sent 2.9 million texts Thank you, Marisha, for the great work that you did in Alabama. What we added in 2021, since it's really only an election year for Virginia, is we added working with the voters that we turned out in Georgia, Arizona, and Texas, letting them know what their elected legislators were doing to try to stop them from voting. So we ran phone banks in Georgia, contacting the Georgia voters who told us they were going to vote by mail. And we told them, did you know your representative or your senator is one of the lead sponsors on any one of the 41 bad bills that were introduced in Georgia trying to make it harder for people to vote. And then when people were surprised, we would give them the option, would you be interested in contacting your legislator's office and letting them know exactly how you feel about this? And all the ones who said, yes, great, let us connect you. And we literally patched them straight through to their legislator's office. So, and this is just Georgia, and this is this here. We sent 52,000 emails to the Georgia legislature, and we made some 30,000 phone calls. State legislatures aren't used to being beaten over the head like that, over bad things that they are doing. So the number one goal of the, Georgia GOP, gotta love their name, Election Confidence Task Force, was to end no excuse, vote by mail. And they couldn't do it. Every bill they introduced, literally the next day, we had an advocacy alert and a phone bank campaign where we were driving calls into their office saying, no, we don't support that, why are you doing that? 202 is a bad bill, but it could have been a lot worse. In Arizona, when they were going after Pebble, same deal. So what they ended up with, now again, Georgia is a trifecta. So is Arizona. So is Texas. There is no way that we realistically should have been able to stop Georgia from ending no excuse absentee voting, which they'd had since 2005. It wasn't new. And stopping Arizona from purging the permanent early voting list, Pebble. Uh, They did ultimately pass a version of the bill, but it doesn't go into effect until 2024. So we slowed them down, hopefully enough, that legislatively we will be able to either overturn it or judicially with lawsuits, we will be able to overturn it or ultimately overturn it federally with the For the People Act. In another life, I was a federal uh, lobbyist and I, I lobbied at the state level as well. So,
0: first of all, thank y'all so much for keeping up with all of this. I mean, it almost feels like I try to keep up with the news and everything. And, you know, that seems like they're trying to pass these bills, like, without anyone noticing. Which, you know, that's, I don't know if that's just me or what. But thank y'all for holding their feet to the fire. I really appreciate y'all.
1: Also, thank you, Miss Andrea, for letting me join you. (laughs) for letting me join you in the awesome work that you do with voter registration. I was so happy to work with you.
4: <laughs> We're going to have to bring you back again, although now <laughs> we are fighting with the telcos on NDLC on whether or not nonprofits will be able to text people from the voter file. So that's a big fight that we're also in.
1: Mm. Yes, I would love to join. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you both gave a little bit of insight into what you guys' organization do. So what does true democracy look like to, to you all? Um, Andrea, you can go first.
4: Well, true democracy to me looks like Um, Very much what they outlined in the For the People Act, meaning there is a baseline of democracy for all the states. All states will have at least 15 days of early voting i mean virginia when we turned blue we went crazy we have 45 days of early voting nobody needs 45 days of early voting how do you cover rides to the polls for 45 darn days (laughs) that's more work um, you know it's like whoa Every state should have no excuse vote by mail. And we really mean there is no excuse and you should not need to send in your photo ID. That is a huge danger that you are going to compromise your privacy information, mailing your driver's license back and forth. It also means that, and again, this is in the, for the people that pass the House, I get the Democracy Restoration Act, meaning people who have felony convictions in their past upon release from prison will have a voter registration form in their outgoing packet so that they can immediately register to vote. Um, Basically, when we look at felony disenfranchisement, that currently impacts 5.8 million people today. So democracy for me says voting is easy. It is not complicated. The rules for when you can vote are similar, or at least there is a baseline for all states. And it's just easy to vote. And people are really encouraged to participate. So, Ms
1: Andrea, and I we have, have a
4: fair districts, and we have fair districts where they didn't pack all the African Americans or Hispanics into a single district
1: hmm. Ms. Andrea, I have a question. I think it's pretty common. Um are felons allowed to vote? yes, after is it like after a certain amount of time what what um, is the, the law there?
4: but there is no federal law currently. So in um, Vermont, and I forget what the other state is, it's probably Maine and Vermont, two states with very, very low percentages of community of color folks, they vote from prison. They never lose the ability to vote. So felony disenfranchisement is a state statute. So there are four states and only four out of 50 with lifetime felony disenfranchisement. Those states are Kentucky, Iowa, Virginia, and Florida. Now, Virginia is in the process of amending her Constitution to remove that from the Constitution. It was entered into our Constitution in 1902. Some people may be aware of the name Senator Carter E. Glass from Glass-Steagall. Well, Senator Glass was from Virginia And in 1902, when he was voicing his support for felony disenfranchisement and putting it in the Virginia Constitution, he basically said, this will mitigate the um, influence of the, quote, darky vote for decades to come. So even in 1902, it was literally to suppress the black vote. And then there are other states that have various rules. Like some states, when you have paid your fines and fees, you're eligible to vote. There are many states, as soon as you are no longer on supervised release, you are eligible to vote which means that if you don't spend a lot of time studying law you may be very confused about whether or not you can vote and then even if you figure it out in the state where you live if you move to another state well now you're going to have to figure out what their rules are because there is currently no federal law Establishing a baseline for people with past felony convictions—that is a huge issue of mine.
0: Well, and it ties into what you said earlier about what you, what your definition of true democracy is. Making sure there's a federal baseline. Uh, Miss B, would you like to explain what true democracy looks like to you?
3: Sure. So I think I mean I want to first of all I want to associate myself with Andrea's remarks, um, and. Particularly, I guess, because Texas is uh, looking at this special session starting next week, you know, we're we're having to think real hard, having just come out of the previous session and seeing sort of what the worst ideas are that anybody could think of and thinking about what, you know, what does constitute, uh, you know, acceptable compromises and things like that one of the things i mean so the the no excuse mail-in voting we think really is important i don't think that's on the table for texas but i think uh one of the things that i would say just to back up a second part of what true democracy looks like is understanding that everybody doesn't live the same life as you so Hmm. whatever it is that you feel like would be um, too hard or perfectly convenient. It, it It is partly just an issue of recognizing that you can't guess what other people's circumstances are. I'll give you an example even that, Andrea, you said, you know people shouldn't be having to mail in personal information. I actually think for a lot of people, that's probably not a big deal. I think they don't care as much about that as they do about some other things but for some people particularly older people who you know live alone they're on a fixed income all that that idea of putting their personal information in a mailing is not how they were raised in it they are nervous about doing it part of it is understanding that not everybody lives your same life so bothering to find out what it is that would help other people do it to other people vote the thing that andrea didn't say that i think i would add to those specifics like no no you know no excuse mail-in voting and not having to include personal information uh for texas obviously uh making sure that counties have the ability to uh, put the polling locations where they think they're needed and not according to some you know, arbitrary rule. We would also put uh, opportunity to cure for a mail-in ballot, which means that if you didn't sign your ballot or you didn't include whatever thing was you were supposed to, it doesn't just get rejected and you don't hear anything more about it. It's that you get a call and they, or you get something in the mail and it says, you have X number of days to come down here and fix this. I think one of the things about Opportunity to Cure, the reason that it is kind of picking up steam and it's getting people know what that means, what they know is if the leadership, are serious that they really do want people to be able to vote, they just don't want fraud, there would be no reason to withhold that opportunity to fix it, right? So if you say, if you you have this one high-stakes chance, and if you make a mistake, you you won't get another chance, a little bit that looks like you're trying to play gotcha, right? And. And so I think we don't wanna see instances of gotcha, because what that says, the biggest thing, I guess, and I'll stop in a second, but what democracy, what true democracy looks like, we hope, is that it's all year long. It is not that people are mostly checked out and then every once in a while, it's like watching a sports game and betting on it or something. It's that you perceive that it's always the system that we all live in. And that if if you don't participate, we we won't really have it. It will be democracy minus you, right? Because democracy means everybody. And it's not just the issue of elections. Look in Texas, we have a short legislative session. In Virginia, same, right? So we don't, we're not in kind of constant legislative cycle. I think Congress is always a little bit, you know, overwhelming for people. Where are we in that process anyway? Are they there, are they not there? Well, in Texas, it's a real, you know, we have 140 days every two years, and there's a tendency for people to think we have an election, then we have a legislative session, and then we have recess for a long time, and everybody just sort of plays on their own. And then we come back. Well, the reality is all that time in between the end of the legislature and the beginning of the next election cycle for people who what we would describe as people who live in, you know, people in the pews, people who live in local communities who, you know, are just out doing doing their thing, grocery shopping and working their jobs, taking care of their kids. That's that's the most important time for them that's when they have a chance to talk to elected officials, understand who currently represents them, understand who, what, you know, what they do or don't agree with, not, when it's not a high stakes situation, talk to their family and friends and get some different perspective. You know, we all have the opportunity to learn from each other. Uh, you may think something's really, really important and I never heard of it. and. I might have gotten an email from some group I belong to, and they said, this thing is bad. And they didn't say, it's uh, it's Abigail's thing, and you you like <laughs> Abigail, so uh, but we just want you to think that this particular issue is a problem. But if I talked to you about it, I might end up with a very different perspective, right? I might say, well, I see what they're saying, and I also see what Abigail's saying. So... That's what real democracy is about in Texas, and in you know other places with with Hispanic majorities or you know pluralities. The saying "ablando siento la gente," uh, uh, talking to each other is how we understand each other. Oh, is I love really, that. Really, really important. If we don't talk to each other. And it doesn't matter how many rules and laws we have about voting and counting ballots, we will not have true democracy.
0: Thank you, B. Um, and thank you, Andrea, too, that I'm thinking a lot about everything that y'all just said. Um, and as a political science student, I graduated with a political science degree. This is making my nerdy heart very happy listening to y'all talk about this. But, um, something that y'all said kind of like really it took a note for me. So, I know a lot of people are feeling very discouraged about elections. I know they're feeling very scared about like you know, the validity of elections and there's conspiracy theories all over the place because the internet is a double-edged sword and we you know, we get in these bubbles and stuff. And so this seems like a really hard time for democracy. And, you know, like y'all were saying, all these like congressional things and these legislative things happening where they're trying to block voting harder people, especially disadvantaged populations. Um, it seems like this is a very difficult time for democracy. And it's a difficult time, especially for disenfranchised people. What gives y'all hope in this fight? I'll start off with um, B and go to Andrea.
3: I mean, a lot of things give me hope. Uh, the fact that we announced that we're having this rally on July 19th, um, we announced it yesterday, and already we've got thousands of people who are looking at it, and we've got a bunch of people signed up to attend, and all. so I, mean, I think people are paying attention. I'll tell you, though, the other thing, um, this is I'm gonna make everybody laugh, probably. But uh, last night I was doing housework and I was feeling a little bit, you know, overwhelmed and down. And I put on the soundtrack to Hamilton again. Yes. <laughs> and I'll <laughs> tell you, I was—I mean, I listened real hard, and I think one of the things I really treasure about that that musical is the way that they it it cuts through you know old-fashioned ideas old-fashioned language I and mean, it makes them very um in a way that you could chew on as you are thinking your own thoughts and i, I mean as i was listening i thought now that's right this is what we're doing this for is it really was a big deal The it really did change the world and it's uh it's it's worth fighting for What gives
4: me hope are, uh, number one, you've got so many young people, and especially in 2020, who really engaged in the election. Um, What we saw in 2018 was the 18 to 24-year-olds. In many of the states where we worked, Their turnout on the low end was 9% and in some states on the high end was like 20%. Things went through the roof in 2020 and I'm hoping we can maintain that. One of the new things that we're also doing in 2021 is we're opening these things called democracies, and Texas is slated to get five of them. Democracy centers are normally deep in community. They're in communities where we have a lot of low propensity voters. And what democracy centers do is they're run by local people. We don't parachute a student, a staff person from somewhere. And we provide all the digital tools and expertise. And then the local community says, look, these are our issues, and then we work with them on what are their issues, where would they need to push to begin to try to resolve that issue. Like one of our democracy centers in Florence, South Carolina, one of their issues is they don't have clean drinking water. So on the Democracy Center, they um, installed a device that is going to make clean water from solar. We have another Democracy Center in Hawkinsville, Georgia, where once a month they did an eating program. People came to the Democracy Center and said, you know, we're like hungry seven days a week. So they rented a space and opened a food pantry two doors down. And, you know, they've got little shopping carts. You go to the food pantry, you pick out what you want. And then when you check out, uh, they check your voter registration. Uh, Is your registration active? Are you registered to vote? Yeah, you are really great. Well, we're going to be having this event on this day over at the Democracy Center. We'd love to have you join us. And then people just talk and they have an african His African American History Museum, they teach the kids about government and how government works. We don't teach civics anymore and haven't for 40 years. And the whole idea is, I guess, if people don't know how government is supposed to work, when it's not working right, people won't know. They'll just go, oh, government is broken so you know we make sure that we're beginning to put that civics piece back in so if you've got sewage in your backyard it's not your united states senator that's in charge of that it's a little lamos sitting on your county council that's their job can
3: i can i just jump in and add to that really quickly it is shocking always how much people take for granted that they understand how basic processes of democracy work and things like levels of government, like Andrew's saying, and how mortified they are when they learn that they don't know that. We routinely, you know, if we give a presentation to a couple hundred people, say, raise your hand if you are sure who your state senator is. And they will confidently raise their hands. And randomly, when you call on somebody, nine times out of 10, they will name someone at some level of government who is not their state senator. It might be their mayor or it might be the president, but it's not gonna be the right name. And explain it, we've started using the, an image of the Brady Bunch. And as there's three levels of government and three branches of government. And you need to know the people in all nine squares equally to understand what you're supposed to be doing, who you're supposed to be calling, what your opportunities are to have an impact. I would love to learn more about like the work y'all do. So are there any bills that we should be aware of that's gonna, I would say from Sen's perspective, the most important thing going on in Texas probably is not voting. It's probably the grid. We don't know yet if that's going to where that's going to fall in the session. And also, Texas is I think we're the last state that still has a full blown sunset review of our agencies. So every, theoretically it's every 10 years, although it's at this point, but we have a complete reauthorization of our agencies. Well, no, it's great. Um, It's been politicized, no surprise, Mm. but we um, in 20, so it'll be the 2022, 2023 cycle. So starting kind of as soon as this, this session is over, all of the the agencies, so the Public Utility Commission, the Railroad Commission, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the Water Development Board, the Soil and Water Conservation Board, all of those agencies, all are up for sunset. What that means is it's not that they're likely not to be reauthorized. It's that there'll be legislation in 2023 that is uh, authorizing legislation. So if there's stuff that we want to include, in the past, we've worked a lot on t- the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, TCEQ, but I think given kind of everything that's going on, the, the, the strategy seems to be TCEQ is probably going to be okay because of EPA, because of the new administration. Um, that agency is always going to be underfunded and, you know, not great, but EPA will help. But the, the agency, the Public Utility Commission in Texas, you know, is the one that we uh, n- couldn't help noticing when all our lights went out, right? So that agency and the Railroad Commission is the one that regulates methane. <laughs> so in a climate and energy environment, those two agencies will be front and center. There will be hearings going on around the state. There will be opportunity for comment. So, that'll be the thing we'd want everybody to pay attention to.
0: So, right before, um, well, after, Andrea, um, when you get done telling me about what we should know, um, I would love to ask y'all one last question, if that's okay, that just got brought up to me. I'll go say ahead. I would, yeah, but anyway, Andrea, you can go.
4: Um. In Virginia, you're going to want to watch the Green New Deal legislation that will all be coming out in December of this year for our session in January. Um, I will have an oversight bill, or my team will have an oversight bill on rural electric cooperatives. The financing, the Green New Deal deal team will have legislation on oversight of credit unions. And because I have democracy and governance, I will also be resubmitting the legislation that says, uh no campaign contributions from public service utility corporations and realistically in virginia we have two big ones verizon and dominion we don't really care about Verizon, they're evil, but you know, we're like, they're naturally evil. But we do mm-hmm. care about Dominion um, because they've got our energy. They were trying to build pipelines until a few months ago. And um, they always have interesting, dirty energy things up their sleeve.
0: Oh man to keep an eye out <laughs> there's lots of stuff going on so the question i wanted to ask real quick and i don't want to throw y'all under the bus so if you're like abigail you didn't prepare us at all but how does democracy and like i guess sustainability environmental justice how do they kind of work together mm-hmm. and i'm say whoever's ready to answer since i did kind of just come up with that <laughs> that is up to y'all
4: I figured you were going to ask that. So it's like, (laughs) I'm actually kind of ready for that. You can read my mind. uh, And and again, that is why the Virginia Green New Deal has a democracy and a governance arm as one of their working groups. So when we look at sustainability, um, that we're also looking at corporate accountability, Um, and making corporations accountable for the pollution and the harm that they have done to EJ communities. So in most instances, corporations are not self-policing. I think we have all pretty much learned that lesson. We are going to have to legislate and put them under the oversight of somebody. And we are also going to have to find them a lot of money when they do bad things, kind of like putting your child on a time out when they just can't seem to obey the rules. So it's very, very important that people, number one, have the ability to vote and to say, um, we don't want corporations doing this. And a lot of that has to do with civic education, making sure people know what they can do. And in some instances, there could be opportunities to do local and even state referendums on the behavior of your, quote, public utilities, because it is the public and we have to have a say in how they are behaving,
2: or not.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I would agree with that. And I also would say, I would maybe uh, challenge the idea of sustainability as a concept a little bit in the sense, in in this way, that sustainability is about keeping things the same, that they can just go on and on like this forever. Mm-hmm. And what I think in Texas, at least, one, there's some stuff that we don't wanna have going on forever. And two, what we know is things do change. And it's not just because of climate. People who are alive, pe- pe- my, one of my staff has a 95-year-old grandpa. Well, somebody who's 95 years old today has been through so many changes in their life, that the question is not whether they have come up with anything that is sustainable. It is in fact recognizing nothing's really sustainable in that sense, that instead we need to focus more than we have on resilience. And rather than expecting to keep everything the same, that we expect everything to change and we're prepared for it. And in that way, I would particularly go back to the very first thing I talked about, about faith communities. And I think where democracy and resilience uh, go together like peanut butter and jelly is, oh my that, God. <laughs> is that if, that we are more resilient to change when we are, one open to all the ideas that come from our collective community and two that we are sure that we're that it's resilient for everybody right that it's not just resilient for people who have already more than everybody else or are you know have have more ability to relocate or change what they eat or change what they drive Resilience means everybody can move forward together. So democracy over time has proven to be a really important concept in making sure everybody's voices get get heard. Uh, There's the king of resilience right there. Um, And the faith community has a particular role in reminding people that change is a constant. Resilience is important and it's important for everyone, not just for those who start from a position of privilege and power.
4: And and I threw a little note in the chat. I was thinking about it. The intersection of democracy and resilience is justice. Yep. Thank you.
5: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Climate Justice Y'all podcast. My name is Michael Hansen, and I'm the executive director of a small nonprofit organization called GASP in Birmingham, Alabama. We're one of the four organizations who came together to produce this podcast. The other groups are the Southeast Climate and Energy Network, the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, and the People's Justice Council. We're centering the stories of the people and places on the front lines of the climate crisis and environmental justice movements in the South, We'll be talking about air, energy, land, labor, democracy, and all kinds of other issues affecting Southern communities. Funding for this podcast was provided in part by the U.S. Climate Action Network. If you'd like to see this work continue, please consider making a donation on our website. If your organization or company would like to sponsor an episode, please get in touch with us by emailing me at michaelgaspgroup.org. At That's michael, M I C H A E L, at G A S P. G-R-O-U-P dot org. Thanks again for listening and being a part of this story. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he
4: can't refuse. With family, cannolis and spins mean everything. Now,
5: you wanna get mixed up in the family business.
4: Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday,